You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi Church, today we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exempted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, 
for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, how do you feel about death? Not the cheeriest way to start today's sermon, but it's a genuine question. How do you feel about death? You see, death is one of the great realities that we all face. They say there's only a few certainties in life, death, taxes, and if you're in Victoria, uh, one of those hard-hitting press conferences from Daniel Andrews every day. But death is there. It is one of the great certainties around us, and we all must deal with that. We all must grapple with it. I find it fascinating the way different people respond and, and, and deal with the reality of death. For some people, the response is to fight it. There's this thing called the Methuselah Foundation. Uh, it draws its name, of course, from the man who, the Bible says, lived for 969 years. Uh, this foundation is dedicated to resisting aging and extending life. Their slogan is to make 90 the new 50 by 2030. Some scientists actually think that that's a little bit conservative. Aubrey de Grey, a researcher at Cambridge University, thinks that soon we'll be able to extend our life almost to a thousand years. He believes that if we can trigger a few things with our genomes, we can actually stop and even reverse aging and achieve near immortality. Sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? And yet near immortality... It's not really enough because however long we live, if it's even to a thousand years, if we end up dying, we're still frustrated. Death just kills us. We hate that idea that even if we can be nearly immortal, we never get quite there. We hate the thought of life ending. As Dylan Thomas once put it, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And so another approach to death is to kind of downplay it. Think uh, Monty Python in their song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It has these words, for life is quite absurd and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your sin give the audience a grin, enjoy it. It's your last chance anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death just before you draw your terminal breath. Others try to embrace it. In Buddhism or Hinduism, for instance, the idea is that after death, you return to life in a different form. You're reincarnated. You come back to continue life, to continue being who you are and to improve and get better in this. That's very common among Eastern religions, but there's also a kind of pop psychology version of it here in our own culture as well, in Disney or an Oprah Winfrey style version, where when you die, you just become like this butterfly that people sense on the breeze, or you're watching over your loved ones from a distance. This, you're still going on as you, just in a different form. For some people, that's all just a bit too touchy-feely, a bit metaphysical, and so they prefer to accept death in all of its brutal reality. 
There are many people in our world who believe that physical matter and the stuff around us and nature is all there is. There is no supernatural. There is no metaphysical. It's just what we have here. And so in that case, there's nothing beyond death. And any attempt to say otherwise is foolish and infantile. Uh, one atheist says this, as much as I would like to believe platitudes like he's in a better place now and I know he's smiling down on us, I see them for what they are and what they represent, attempts to avoid facing the reality of death. I actually think that's pretty insightful because I reckon the most common response to death in our culture is to try to ignore it, to avoid facing the reality of death. We know it's there, but we just try to keep away from it, just not think about it. I guess that's actually one of the reasons why this year has been so confronting for so many people. I was reading an article in Time magazine the other day uh, about, what you know, about what New York was like at the height of the pandemic. 23,000 deaths in just a matter of weeks two weeks at the start of April where they were getting more than 600 every day. Uh, Time magazine focused in on one hospital, Wickoff Heights Medical Centre in Brooklyn. The hospital has a capacity of around 350 beds uh, and they treated 2,000 COVID-19 patients. 300 died and 200 hospital staff got infected as well. At one point, they had to set up an improvised outdoor morgue because the hospital morgue was overflowing. The article says there were three refrigerated semi-trailers capable of holding more than 150 bodies between them. They were brought in as an emergency solution during the height of the pandemic. The transporters often occur the transports often occurred at night to avoid upsetting neighbors of the hospital. To avoid upsetting neighbors of the hospital. You see, we don't want to be faced with the reality of death. We want to put it off to the side. We know that it's there, but we're desperate to ignore it. But what if, what if you could overcome death? What if death wasn't the final word and that there was something after this? And what if the life after this was even better than the life that we have now? You see, that is the Christian promise, that there is life after death, a life that is full and forever, as John Piper puts it. But all of this hope hinges on one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to see that. This is really what Paul has been building towards Last week, you remember, we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 15, where Paul outlines the historical case for the physical resurrection of Jesus. He was very careful, very specific. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day and then appeared to many witnesses. He's almost like a lawyer laying out his case bit by bit, a little bit of evidence and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. He's making the historical case for the resurrection. And today's passage, we're going to see him make the theological case for it. We're going to see how he, he wants us to see why this is so important, why the actual, literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything and why we need to believe it. You see, it turns out that there were some people in Corinth who denied it. 
they rejected it. In verse 12, we read, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, Paul is stating the historical case for the resurrection because he needs to. There are people in the church who don't believe in it. They don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe that anyone else will either. Now, there's probably a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, it's because it's a miracle. It's not standard practice for people to just rise from the dead. And so when they hear the story of Jesus, they just find that extraordinary. It's a miracle. Now, it's important to note this because some people think that ancient people were just kind of a little bit gullible. They didn't understand science and so they, they were kind of uh, believed anything. But that's not actually true. As C.S. Lewis once put it, that's chronological snobbery. It's the assumption that we just know more because we're, we've been around longer. But the people in the ancient times, in the first century, they understood the difference between life and death. And they understood that this story of Jesus rising from the dead was extraordinary. It was a miracle. So they found that hard to believe. But there's a second reason too, and this is arguably even more significant. It's not just that they found it hard to believe, it's that they didn't actually want to believe it. The culture of Corinth, you see, was heavily shaped by the Greeks, and the Greek philosophers had a very low view of the physical world around us. They thought that the body was inferior to the soul, and the, and the, the goal of all philosophy and all religion was to escape the prison of the body. As Anthony Thistleton puts it, the Greeks often viewed the release of the soul from the body as a welcome liberation. The physical was left behind as the self became pure spirit. And so for the Greeks, the idea of anyone rising physically from the dead wasn't, so much, wasn't just hard to believe. It was something that they didn't want to believe. It wasn't something that they were looking for. As N.T. Wright summarises, nobody in their right mind thought the Greeks, having got rid of the body, would want it or something like it back again. Now, clearly this thinking had infiltrated the church. Paul actually hints at this later on in verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, that sounds a little bit like something your dad would say when you're a teenager. But Paul's making a very serious point. You see, these guys inhabited an intellectual and a philosophical world and a culture that despised the physical. And so they spurned the resurrection of Jesus. It was awkward and embarrassing to believe something like this. And so lots of the Corinthians had apparently just kind of jettisoned it from their beliefs. Now, I wonder if that sounds familiar. You see, the issue that Paul was facing in Corinth is actually quite familiar to us as well. There's lots of people in our world today who would dismiss the resurrection. They ridicule us for believing in it. That might be on intellectual grounds. You know, it's just not possible, a scientist might say. Or it might be on philosophical grounds, similar to the Greeks. There's lots of people who prefer the idea of a non-physical, purely spiritual existence beyond the grave. Either way, it seems outrageous to believe that Jesus was risen, uh, rose from the dead. It's a little bit like believing in Santa Claus or something like that. And so it's tempting as Christians, as churches, to modify our beliefs and to make them sound more intellectually acceptable or philosophically sophisticated. You actually see this in plenty of churches today. There's lots of places that would just flat out deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. They might say that he rose in some spiritual sense, 
but that's really it. Just consider Bishop uh, John Shelby Spong. He writes, I do not believe that the resurrection had anything to do with the physical resuscitation of a deceased body. Instead, he believes it was a transcendent metaphysical experience. Anything more than that is seen as a misinterpretation of the ancient writers. John Dominic Crossan writes this, When the gospel writers, writers spoke about the resurrection, they were not speaking literally but symbolically, and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're dumb if you believe the physical resurrection of Jesus. But Paul would object. He is at pains throughout chapter 15 to describe and defend the resurrection of Christ as physical and tangible and literal. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose again. The same person that we saw up on the cross, who was wrapped in linen in the grave, got out of that grave to a new life. And he wants us to understand why this is so important. Really, his whole ministry hinges on this. It stands or falls on this. Everything is at stake here for Paul. Look at what he says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's all just a waste of time. In fact, it would mean that I'm a liar, verse 15. We've even been found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. He's saying, I, I preached all this time that God raised Jesus from the dead and if that didn't happen, then I'm a liar. In fact, I'm a, a charlatan. I'm responsible, responsible for giving people false hope. If there's no resurrection, verse 17, uh, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. God's judgment hangs over you. And there's no hope for anyone who's already died. Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're lost forever. And everyone left behind is wasting their time. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If, however, Christ did rise from the dead, then everything changes. Verse 20, if Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's a lot in this little passage. But I think the key to understanding it actually comes in the next couple of verses. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, what Paul is trying to show in this, uh, this passage, he's trying to show us where death comes from and how death can be overcome. And at the heart of it are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. And to understand what Paul's trying to say here, we need to understand the role that these two men play in the great story of humanity. So for the next five or so minutes, I'm going to do a little theology here, a little bit, a bit of a lecture almost. Now, sometimes I do that just as a tangent, but really this is fundamental to understanding all of this stuff. What we have here is what theologians call uh, the federal headship of Adam and Christ. That's a fancy term that basically means that these two men uh, were chosen by God to represent a whole group of people, to represent humanity. 
And we might not be familiar with that uh, term exactly, but a helpful analogy I read during, during the week was from the world of sport. It might help us understand what's going on. If you think of a football team, they represent the city that they come from. We rise or fall on their fortunes. Taking it further, an individual player can represent a team. When they score a goal, the whole team benefits. If they give away a penalty, the whole team suffers. That's kind of how it works with Adam and with Christ. God established them as the federal heads of humanity, the representatives of humanity as a whole. This means that their actions have the power to affect everyone else. We rise or we fall on their choices. That's what we need to understand when you see these two in the Bible. That's, you've got to grasp the, the jeopardy, the possibility, the drama, whenever we see these two figures through the Bible. And first of all, we see Adam. He's the first human in the Bible. And in Genesis 2, God gives him instructions for how to live. Verse 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, must, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam is being given a choice to obey or to disobey. Now, the specifics might seem a little strange to us, like what's the deal with the tree? But it actually points to something bigger. God is asking Adam to trust that he knows what is good and that what God uh, defines as good is actually the very best thing for us. He's asking Adam to obey by trusting that God is good. Now, see the stakes here. If Adam obeys and does the right thing, then all of his posterity, all of his descendants will be blessed. But if he disobeys, we will all die. It all hangs on Adam. More sadly, tragically, Adam did not obey. In Genesis 3, we see that he and his wife Eve disobeyed God rather than trust that what God defines as good was best for them. They seek to define right and wrong for themselves. And death is the consequence. A death that is spiritual, physical, and has the potential to be eternal. First, we see the spiritual death. As soon as they eat, Adam and Eve are changed. They feel shame at their nakedness, we're told. That's because we, they realize that they are no longer secure. They're now vulnerable to each other. They were made to look after each other, to serve each other, but already, immediately, they've switched to start to serve only themselves. We see this when God confronts them. Genesis 3 verse 11, God says to Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He's blaming Eve. He's throwing her under the bus. He's looking after himself. This is the first sign of a spiritual death. And that spiritual death leads to a physical death. Adam and Eve die, not immediately, but from the moment they eat the fruit, their bodies begin to decay and to break down. There is a curse on the world now and everything is affected. Genesis 3 verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, Adam and Eve will die. And then they face eternal death. Their sins mount up against them and God's justice looms over them. Well, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, spiritual, physical, eternal. This is Adam's reality and it's ours too because he was our representative. He was the federal head. Our future rested in his hands, on his choices. And so we too face death. As Paul says in chapter 15, verse 22, in Adam all die. Because of Adam, we start life on death row with a sentence of death hanging over us a death that's spiritual, physical, and eternal. So we are all dead spiritually. Romans 3 says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. We're all spiritually dead to God. We resist him. We therefore face a physical death. Romans 5 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all, die, because all sinned. Sin leads to death. Adam sinned, so we sin, and so we die. And that means that we face eternal death, God's judgment. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Sin leads to death. If you sin, you die. When you die, you face God's judgment. Unless, unless God intervenes. You see, Adam failed as our representative. So God sent another to be our representative. He sent Jesus Christ. This is, of course, the incredible truth of the gospel. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God so loved the world, rebellious humanity, that he provided a way of salvation, a way to deal with sin and death and to give us new life. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, adding to his divine nature a human nature so that he could represent humanity before God. And so Jesus did all that was required. First, he did what we failed to do. He obeyed God perfectly all the time in everything. And then he made up for what we did do. He made up for our sin. He died for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve. He bore the full wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. We sin and so we die and so Jesus dies for us. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the incredible truth of the gospel. And this is what God offers to us. Jesus can be our representative before God. When we stand before God and face judgment, we can say, I want you to 
treat me the way, treat me according to what Jesus has done. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. If you can recognize and see that you're a sinner, that you've walked away from God, and then if you can acknowledge that to God and ask God to to give you what Jesus has done for you, then you can be saved. You will not perish but have eternal life. This is the story of the gospel. And as Paul says here in verse 21, for as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is where life and death come from. Death comes from sin, comes from Adam. But now there can be new life that comes from Christ. But it all hinges on the resurrection. All this wonderful stuff, all this amazing, this incredible offer hinges on whether or not Christ rose physically from the dead. I want to suggest three ways in which the physical, literal, tangible resurrection of Christ changes everything, what it gives us. The first thing it gives us is assurance of forgiveness. I started today by talking about the various ways we grapple with the reality of death. We resist it, we downplay it, we ignore it, we try to reinterpret it. But underneath all of those things, I think, is something else. I think it's fear. We fear death, not because it's unknown, but because of what we know about it, of what we sense is on the other side. Paul describes it like this, 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We fear death because we fear God's judgment. And we should. But in Christ, we know that we can be delivered from that judgment. We can know that we are forgiven. That Christ, our representative, has done everything that was needed. He's done what we couldn't do and he's made up for what we did do. But we can only be sure of this if Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Jesus died for sins, but the only way that we can know that he was successful is if he didn't stay dead. He must rise from the grave. Do you see the logic here? Sin leads to death. That's God's judgment on sin. Jesus died for our sin. He took God's judgment for our sin. But if he stays dead, then that would indicate that God's judgment was still over him and therefore over us. Colossians 2, Paul says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what happens at the death of Christ. But we can't be sure of that unless he rises from the dead. We can't be sure that the legal demands have been met, that the debt has been paid, unless Christ is allowed to go free from the grave. That's what Paul says here, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You're still there. You're still stuck with them. But if you rose from the dead, then you can be freed from your sins. They no longer define you. Christ has overcome the grave 
And so he has overcome your sin. I actually think we often overlook the resurrection. If you've been to church for more than five minutes, you know that we focus a lot on the cross. It's there physically. You'll find statues and paintings of Jesus on the cross. You'll find people wearing crosses and crucifixes around their necks. All of our songs are about it. We're constantly singing about blood and sacrifice. I know for myself that often when I'm telling the gospel in my sermons, I'll stop at the death of Christ. But the death of Christ wouldn't actually achieve anything unless he rose from the dead. It's in his resurrection that we can be sure that his death did something, that it achieved something. Otherwise, it would all be vain. It would all be futile. We'd be stuck in our sins. So, yes, we should talk about the cross, but we also need to talk about the resurrection, about the empty tomb, not just the cross, about the risen Jesus, not just the dead Jesus, because it's the risen Jesus who guarantees our salvation. Christ's resurrection is the proof that his death achieved something. In that, in his resurrection, we can have assurance of God's forgiveness. Secondly, we can have power for new life. Death came from Adam but life comes from Christ. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Uh, Christ, he says, is the first fruits of those who are to come. The first fruits, uh, you'd be surprised to know, the first fruits of the harvest, and they point to what's going to come later. That means that Jesus, in the same way, is the first fruits of what is to come. He is the sign His resurrection is the pointer to what is to follow, the harvest of new life that all of his people will experience. And just as death was multidimensional, it was spiritual and physical and eternal, so is life. So first of all, we see that there is a spiritual life that begins. God, the God who created us in the first place, now breathes new life into us to recreate us and to give us a new kind of way of being. Perhaps you've already experienced some of this. Maybe you used to look at pornography, but now you find that abhorrent. Perhaps you used to look down on people and be judgmental, but now you have a new humility and you're moved with compassion when you see someone who's made mistakes. Perhaps you used to be angry all the time, but now you find that you have a peace and a patience. What's happening there is nothing less than resurrection power. You are experiencing new life that has been made possible because of Christ's resurrection. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses, but now God has made us alive, made us alive together with Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we get to experience this spiritual life and then eventually we get to experience a new physical life. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Now, we're actually going to see this in greater detail next week as we look at the last part of chapter 15. But see what it says there. It's our body is sown in dishonor, but is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Now, don't miss here, Paul, when he says a spiritual body. He's not talking about a ghostly, non-physical body. He's talking about a transformed and a glorious body. You think of the words, the wonder of Easter Sunday, a dead person coming to life, a wretched, a torn, a broken body transformed into something glorious. Folks, that's what you get to experience. That's what you will experience if you're one of God's people. This broken matter, this broken down body will be transformed into something glorious. So we have a spiritual new life, a physical new life, and eventually we'll have an eternal life. This new glorious body is promised to us, but we have to wait a bit. You see, Paul makes it clear that there's a bit of a timetable on this. Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ is the start of the harvest, but the rest of the harvest, all of his people, that only happens later on. And he says that it's uh, when he comes, the second coming of Jesus at the end of all time. That's when God's people rise to this new life. And that means that we will still die because verse 26, the last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. This life that we're all currently living will end. There's a new one coming after that, but this one will end. Now, you might wonder why that is. Why do I have to experience physical death? I mean, didn't Jesus die for this? So why do I still need to die? Why can't we just live forever and just avoid death? Well, it's because sin is still here, still within us. It's still around us in the world, breaking us down. But there is a new life that is coming. And that new life will be eternal. It can be difficult for us to wait. It's hard to have hope because hope is based on something that's not yet here that is still unfulfilled. Romans 8 says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Where Creation is desperate for it. Creation is in bondage to corruption. It says groaning in the pains of childbirth until now, longing for this new life to begin to be brought out. We too feel this. Romans 8:23 not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies we long for this it can be hard waiting for it but God's promise is that when it comes it will be worth it it will be a life that begins and never ends a life more spectacular and beautiful and glorious than we could ever imagine. So the resurrection gives us assurance of forgiveness. It gives us the power for new life. And it gives us, thirdly, meaning in this life. That's important to say, because sometimes people think that the hope for the future must devalue the present for the Christian. You often said that Christians can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But for Paul, it's actually the other way around. That's his argument in this passage. He says, look, if there's no hope for us beyond the grave, then what we're doing here is just a waste of time. 
Verse 17, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the Christian life can be pretty hard. Paul knew that, maybe better than anyone else. 2 Corinthians 11, he he tells the Corinthians how he'd been persecuted for his faith, how he'd been flogged five times. He'd been beaten with rods and stoned. His commitment to the gospel meant that he'd endured great difficulties. Three times I was shipwrecked, he says, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Rarely was he comfortable. Always he was in danger. In danger from rivers, he says, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of that was a waste of time. Chapter 15, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Why would I put myself through this? I mean, I die every day, he says in verse 31. But what's the point if there's nothing beyond this? And so he concludes, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's nothing beyond all of this, there's no reason to go through it all. Let's just give up. But if there is hope beyond the grave, then it does make sense. See, Paul was willing to suffer and risk death because he believed that there was something beyond it. That made it worth it. I want to suggest there's a few ways in which this happens. Like, how does this work? I want to suggest that if you believe that this is all there is, there's nothing beyond this life, a few things happen. One option is that you just kind of pursue hedonism. Your whole life is about finding pleasure. You got 80, 90 years, the clock's ticking, you better get out there and get as much as you can. But it's never satisfying. Your bucket list is never emptied. But even if it is, the pleasure that you sought is never quite as pleasurable as you expected it would be. And underneath all of that, there's this undercurrent of anxiety. Because if this is the only life you have, you'd better not lose it. You live your life walking this tightrope of mortality, worrying that you're about to fall off. Or if you're thinking more broadly, there's this immense pressure to fix everything, to make this world a better place because it's all that we have. But you're always frustrated. You work hard. You get the right people elected to government, but then they get voted out and everything that you want is reversed by the next guy. You strive to change people, to make society a better place, but they always let you down and everything reverts back to where it was. And so you're left with another option. Pleasure doesn't work. Anxiety is too much. And so you choose instead apathy. If this life is all there is, then there's no point to it. The only way that you can really find any kind of satisfaction is to not look for any. Nothing really lasts. And so nothing really matters, not achievement, because what you do will be undone, not fame, because you will be forgotten. And even if you're not, you won't be there to hear people sing your praises. Nothing lasts, and so nothing matters. But the hope of the resurrection changes all of that. 
First of all, it changes your pleasures. Christ's resurrection brings new life, a life that you get to live with God, the one who knows what is best for your life. And so once you start trusting that and following him, you discover all of the goodness that he has for you. Everything begins to taste better. All of your old pleasures suddenly taste better and you discover new pleasures and everything that you find comes from God, the Father of lights who loves to give good gifts to his children. So it transforms your pleasures. And it also means that you can replace anxiety with freedom. This life will end, but it's not the end. There will be another life, a life that will be better than this one. And that changes the way you approach everything. As Paul says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, he's not afraid of death. He's willing to embrace it because he's going to have something even better on the other side. And finally, it replaces apathy with meaning and with purpose. See, Paul goes on to say in Philippians 1, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor, doing God's work. That's what Paul hints at here too. In verse 25, he says that Christ must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Christ is at work extending his reign over the earth. He is the king of all things, bringing the goodness of his rule into this world. And he starts with us. You see, from the very beginning, humans have resisted God's rule. That's what Adam did. He wasn't willing to trust God. And we're the same. And whenever we uh, pursue our own ways, our own life, it always brings death. Every time we try to fix things, it actually makes it worse. The Melbourne writer Mark Sayers says that we are people who want the kingdom without the king. We want a beautiful utopia where everything's good and we want heaven on earth. We just don't want the one who gives it all to us. We don't want God. And so we can't find it. But as God's people, we are the beginning of something new. When we submit to Christ as our king, we start a new thing. We bring life into this world. We show the world what God is like. We show the world that God is good and that we can trust him and that his, his rule will bring all good things into this world. And as such, we become a kind of invitation to the world. We are an outpost of heaven, showing the world what it would be like to live with him. We're the, the trailer pointing to the feature. We're the shadow pointing to the reality. We're the, the footsteps coming down the hall that point to the coming of Christ. And just think how powerful that could be right now. You see, the world around us is desperate for hope. We long for things to be back to normal. We've lived with this pandemic for six months now. And we just wish that everything was like it used to be. But what if we're wrong? What if it takes years for things to get back to normal? Or here's the other thing. What if normal still isn't good enough? I mean, let's be real here. The world pre-COVID wasn't perfect, was it? People were still lonely. People were isolated. There were people without jobs. There was violence. 
economic disparity. And so the world doesn't need normal. It needs better. It needs something altogether better. And the only way we'll find that is if the world submits to the reign of a good God. That's what we get to point to. In the midst of death, we point to the one who gives life. In our lives, we show how good he is. We point to the one who gave his life so that we could have life. We point to the one who is the first fruits of a new life, who rose on Easter Sunday to begin and make all things new. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the reality of the resurrection. Lord, I pray for those listening today who might doubt it, might wonder about it. I pray that they might have a deep certainty and a conviction that they might have be prompted to research it and to study it and find reassurance. Lord, I thank you for what the physical, tangible, literal res resurrection of Christ actually achieves. I thank you that it offers us assurance of forgiveness because you have conquered the grave and overcome our sin. I thank you that it offers us a new life, the power of a new life right now and into the future. And I thank you that it gives meaning for this life. It transforms our pleasures. It transforms the way we approach life and death. And it gives us a meaning and a purpose for right now. Lord, I pray that we might be a people who point to the good rule of God in this world and that we might invite others to experience that that they might taste and see that you are good as they see us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.